Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market the podcast where we talk to smart people but not necessarily done by smart people that is an awesome question this one goes down probably on one of my top five hey i like nutrition i like to eat food this is the coolest thing ever we're gonna do this forever i wish i paid more attention in that class you know i'm gonna be honest i don't understand that as a man i just i don't get it welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. Thanks for joining us. Sorry it uh, we missed last weekend, but it was a holiday, so I feel like that gives us... And I had to move. Oh, yeah. Well, we did move studios. Actually, it's cool. We are in the process of... We're trying to soundproof this one. We're in a loft now. I feel like we're kind of like moving on up in the world. We started Humble Beginnings, and now we're in a loft. Next place, We've penthouse. gone from a closet to a, a garage. garage. To and down to this. How yeah. about a penthouse next? Sure, sure. Today is going to be really cool. If you stick around to the very end of the show, you will learn the art of the perfect groin strike. Honestly, if you want to... Not from us, don't worry. No, from somebody who knows what she is doing. Yes, I said she. It is a woman who is badass. We talked to Susan Shorn today. She just wrote a book. She's going on a book tour soon. It's called Smile at Strangers. And we'll go into a little bit more about Susan. First, we got to just get into some things. We really appreciate people reaching out. We've gotten the coolest emails over the past couple weeks. People, you know, saying, hey, here's why I like your show. Here's some guest recommendations. We had a guy who used to be a radio DJ. He said, hey, maybe I could help you guys out with some, I don't, I don't even know, some Broadcasting some skills. tips and yeah. stuff. Yeah. And so we're like, dude, let's do it. So the community just is great. And encouraging words, we appreciate that. You can shoot us a donation if you'd like, smartpeoplepodcast.com slash drink, because 
we like to say. It's, you know, you're buying us a beer or something like that. And the Amazon banner, we haven't really talked about it too much. It's still there. Some people are confused. You just click on the banner and it goes to Amazon as normal. But we get a little, a very small percentage, no cost to you. So that helps support the show also. I do have to say the most important thing is just tell a friend about the podcast. Post on your Facebook, your Twitter, whatever it may be. Email your friends, your family, your relatives. Just tell them, hey, check out Smart People Podcast. You'd like this episode. Send them a sample of, of the show, that kind of thing. We just we want to get more people listening, and the best way to do this is grassroots and through you guys because you guys are awesome, and I'm sure everybody you know is awesome. So just let them know about the show. Have them download one and check it out. We appreciate that. So now again, we're going to we're gonna get to the interview with Susan Shorn and her book, Smile at Strangers. She is a double black belt in karate. I know, John, you kind of found Susan and her book, so you want to tell them a little bit more? I'm going to butcher this, but she holds black belts in Kyokushin and Sado karate, but she's taught writing and literature at the University of Texas, St. Edwards University, and the University of Hawaii Hilo. She's also written for online publications such as McSweeney's and The Rumpus. She's heavily involved over at Sun Dragon Martial Arts and Self-Defense. She's a really cool lady, and she's written an amazing book. Yeah, I mean, a lot of her thing here is understanding and dealing with fear, anger, violence, through karate, we, w- we were interested in not only the cool stuff like how do you punch somebody in the Adam's apple, but also kind of what has her experience with karate taught her, even from a woman's perspective. We get into how women can be violent, man. You know, they're not necessarily meek or, you know, smaller beings. They, could, they can whoop some ass when they want. So it's really cool. And I got a feeling, as we said, when Susan goes on her book tour, she's going to do great things. So... We'll now turn it over to the interview. Thanks for listening. And this is Susan Shorn. Susan, we really just wanted to start off and talk to you about, you know, your book, Smile at Strangers, and more so the philosophy behind it, which I'd like to kind of learn more about in, in things like getting others comfortable with yourself is where Smile at Strangers came from. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. It was um, an attempt to sort of explain to people how I became the person that I am. I write this column for McSweeney's um, about women and fighting, and that's kind of snapshots of how this philosophy gets applied in my daily life. But I wanted to give people a, um, a sense of how I developed into that kind of person because it was a very long process. It was a gradual transformation. A lot of things had to come together to make that happen. Yeah, and actually I watched the trailer and you were talking about how writing you know, writing about yourself is often one of the best ways to kind of learn about your experiences because you're forced to think about things rather than just experience them. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, um, you have to go back and reflect and you have to sort of make certain judgments about what you did and, and what worked and what didn't work. And it requires a certain level of scrutiny and, and honesty, I think, that you don't get um, in other ways. What was the scariest thing you kind of learned or figured out through the writing process as you were kind of telling your your own story um scary about the writing process no about about you know that you might have unlocked about yourself oh man i i didn't realize that's why i did this you know wow well let's see uh there, there there's so many things that i could talk about part of it was really trying to be honest with myself about the effects that my behavior had had before i started training 
and the the way that my relationships with my uh, family in particular had really needed to be balanced. And so I spent a lot of time as I was writing thinking, boy, I, I'm doing better at this now, but I still have a long way to go. <laughs> I have a lot of work <laughs> to do to balance the kind of internal problems that I'm dealing with every day and not making those into problems for everybody around me, mm-hmm. which is part of the part of the project for me is that I need to calm myself down and make myself a less fearful person, not just because it makes me feel better, but because when I go around being fearful and angry all day, I'm not pleasant to be around. And, and you know, you end up without many friends if you don't take care of that. Mm-hmm. Actually, and that's a, a good place to start, especially regarding your experiences. We talked a little bit about it in the intro, but you really dove into martial arts. I know you're a, a second degree black belt. Mm-hmm. Did you do that because you were always naturally a fearful person? <laughs> in a way, yeah, that's I mean, I think I got into martial arts because there was a very primal connection for me with just being able to commit violence. <laughs> that was really attractive to me <laughs> as a sort of a lizard brain uh, response to the the kinds of anxiety that I dealt with. What kept me in the system and what got me through I have a, a, a first degree black belt in Kyokushin and then a second degree black belt in Sado. They're related systems was that there was all of this framework around the, the way that I was training in this particular system um, that made it so applicable to everything I was doing. So it really wasn't just a pursuit of this one thing that I happened to be good at or that really spoke to me, but that I could apply it in all these other parts of my life. It was very sort of efficient. I really liked the practical aspect of it in, in that regard. I know you talk a lot about, you talk about karate and fighting and violence and fear in the context of being a woman. Do you think that, I mean, it's kind of strange, I don't want to say strange, but to, to say, hey, I want to fight, I want to be physical, that's not a very feminine response to a lot of things. And I'm sure you've heard that and dealt with that in the yeah, past. Absolutely. What, what is kind of your response to that? It's not a socially sanctioned female response. But it's very, very common. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, if you think about women protecting their children or uh, women who are who are physically threatened, women are really good fighters and and brutal fighters. And you know, and some women really like that. And it's actually not. It's something that's kind of been socialized out of us that you women don't do that. But if you hang around in in the kind of circles that I do, you find that it's actually really common, just as common, I think, as it is for men. And a lot of women, too, I think, have a lot of aggression but feel they can't express it physically. And so they turn to other forms of aggression like gossip and backbiting and um, and other types of, um, of acting out. You know, that's so interesting you're saying about gossip because it's just the verbal violence being the same way of kind of expressing those emotions and those fears as a guy might just, you know, people always say, oh, guys just handle it because a lot of times it's physically they'll handle it, rather, yeah. you know. And I never thought about that being the same thing, uh, you know, from the female perspective. Obviously, I don't have any female perspective, but... <laughs> I'm sure you know some women. Yeah, I know a couple. <laughs> um, the, uh, I think, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Now, I don't want to make a strict dichotomy here that men are physical and women are verbal or whatever. Um, there's some, some new uh, data that show that in the workplace, women who are abusive or bullying towards subordinates tend to exhibit that behavior more towards other women. So women have aggre- uh, express aggression in the workplace and this kind of bullying behavior um, more so than, than men do. But the idea for me was that I like to, to express power physically. And I was never told I couldn't do that because I was a girl. But it, it actually seemed more important to do that because I was a girl because I was kind of always getting dumped on for being female and I was being 
I was at risk because I was female. And that to me made it seem like I have all that much more reason to fight and to, to be able to, um, to react powerfully in a physical way because I'm more likely to need to. And have you actually, have you before karate, I guess it's a two part question before karate. And then after your training, have you had to, have you found yourself in situations where you needed to react in a physical manner? Not in a like an assault situation. Okay. I've been very lucky, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I maybe that's because of awareness training or other things. I've been in numerous situations where there was a a, um, a spoken threat or an implied physical threat that I was able to either de-escalate or leave the situation. Always the preferable option. Most of my real like kind of uh, throat gripping violence uh, experience comes from childhood because I was the youngest mm-hmm. of five, and there yeah. was a lot of like just general brawling in my family. And, uh, so that's, that's why I'm, I'm a grappler and a biter too. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that makes sense. Oh, John, did you have something? Yeah. I wanted to ask how you, what path took you to karate and martial arts? I mean, what made you end up on that and finding out that that was the thing that, you know, centered you and relaxed you and just, you were in touch with the martial arts? Well, I, I had an early experience with uh, in a Korean martial arts system when I was an undergraduate in college, and I, I really liked the sort of um, the attention to detail, and I was, I was sort of naturally good at it, too, which always helps <laughs> keep you going. But it was, uh, it was a fairly typical um, male-led school, and there was a, a lot of emphasis on sort of self-improvement to become more, um, you know, self-actualized and become, uh, you're going to be successful, and there's a lot of this in this especially in American martial arts, is kind of focused on this type A personality. And after, I think, about a year, year and a half, the charm just sort of wore off for me. My husband was training there with me, too, and he got injured. So we stopped, and it was 10 years later that I kind of walked into this other school. I thought, I'd kind of like to do martial arts again. I was good at it. It was fun. I need some exercise. And my friend Gina, I was in graduate school at the time, she had me come to her school, and and I started training in this this other system, uh, which was Kyokushin Karate at the time that was taught by women for women, and it was a, a completely different experience. And that was where I really hit that sort of, this is a transformative um, path that I'm entering on now. This is showing me the world in a, in a new way, but a way that makes sense with all of the sort of inconsistencies that I've noticed before. And uh, this is something that's, that is, is going to do me a lot of good, and I'm going to learn a lot. It's going to be really interesting. And that was kind of how I kept kept going. I'm as surprised as anybody that I have a second degree black belt. Really, I did not <laughs> sign up thinking that that would ever happen. I do want to talk about that. So you, you mentioned the book and you said now the karate kind of taught you a new way, a new lens to, to look at things and mm-hmm. to, to discover the world and deal with situations. I wanted to kind of dive into that. And I don't know exactly the best way to get into it, but kind of what have you found? What are the key things that karate taught you outside of the dojo? Okay, so yeah, there's there's a, a really basic framework that I was taught in uh, the self-defense portion of our curriculum that also was just sort of drawn, connected to the karate, but this is what I found so applicable. And, and the basic concept was, one, using your brain is always the first best approach to, to a problem, but it has its limits. So I come from a very empirical family, where you know, scientists and lawyers and accountants, and so I really... I think about everything. That was always my approach to every problem. And the way that we were taught self-defense at Sundragon was, yes, your brain is really important. You need to get good information and you need to um, observe and you need to make good judgments. But you also have to, for example, trust your intuition. 
if you are in a situation and it feels wrong, you don't have to sit there and figure out why it should feel right. You can just leave. That's probably the safer option. So that was a very interesting mix for me. Um, and I've used that in, you know, walking to my car after being at the library and it's dark, you know, and I'm walking down one sidewalk and I see or feel something that feels wrong. And I just go back and go a different direction. I just go around. Hmm. Um, the idea that you could do that and not feel silly about it was really kind of a, a revelation to me. It was just like, no, this this seems like the, the safer thing to do. I'm just going to do it. I don't care what it looks like. That willingness to, to make mistakes was another big part of it. I have always been very sort of performance oriented and not, I don't like to make mistakes. I don't like to be seen making mistakes. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and one thing that karate does is it makes you look like a fool all the time, especially when you're learning new material. So that was a really great lesson for me was that when I sort of gave myself up to that process of I'm going to try something new and it's going to look dopey and realizing that the double payoff from that was one, you're not going to improve your skills unless you try new things and are willing to look stupid. And two, just the act of sort of being shameless about trying something new is a really empowering feeling because you realize that all of the sort of punishment that you've imagined will happen when you screw up or look silly, none of that really happens. It's not if, – if, if people think that you look funny, it, that doesn't really have an, an impact on you if you don't let it. So that was very freeing also. Mm-hmm. I could go on. There's a lot of things, but no, you might want to get another question in here. Well, no, I do. I actually do want to, to kind of learn more about that. The one I thought was super interesting was trusting your intuition in a sense that I like the way you said and not feel silly about that. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody from time to time gets that feeling. And oftentimes I think, and I could be wrong or stereotyping, a lot of times men would say, well, I'm a man and I'm, I'm I can handle this or this is stupid. I shouldn't worry about the darkness or whatever but there's really no harm except for a little hit to your ego in 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 following that absolutely and i mean you could call that caution yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. just you know just erring on the side of caution um, or discretion something like that i think we're kind of socialized to act like nothing's wrong ever you know if i if i act like there might be something dangerous then i have to admit that the world isn't a completely um, safe place. And we don't want that. We want every, you know, we want to all tell each other that, uh, that we live in a perfectly safe world. And there's a sort of denial underlying that, that I think is unhealthy for the individual and for the community. Um, I think, I think women, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe you can give me some other perspective on mm-hmm. this. I think maybe women are more susceptible to that because mm-hmm. we're constantly told, you know, don't be silly. That's the, the don't be silly, uh, don't be ridiculous. I don't I don't think men get that quite as much, but I could be wrong. No, yeah, I mean it sounds right. And you know, I can't help but to think a couple of weeks ago I was in a neighborhood that I'm not usually in and it seemed a little weird. I parked my car or whatever, and I've been I've never really had anything kind of scary in society happen to me or whatever. And I come back to my car and somebody had shattered my window, uh-huh. stolen, you know, my briefcase and my computer uh-huh. and all this stuff and it was one of the first times, I mean, not only was I pissed, but it, it made me realize, okay, th- this is a flawed or, you know, it's a, it's a crazy environment. And it just, rem- you need, almost need those things to remember. You can't, you know, you can't be scared all the time, but you can't drop your guard, like you said, and, and right. just buy into the everything's okay. That guy's definitely a good guy or, or whatever. 
Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if, if, if all you lost was property yeah. and hopefully you were insured, yeah. that's, that's still much better than other things that could have happened. Hopefully it was just more of an annoyance, although you do feel very violated, especially sure. Americans with our cars, you know, <laughs> yeah. you got in my car and you took my stuff. Exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, it, uh, property crime is, is another sort of manifestation of violence. It's a sign that people are not able to meet their needs in um, legal ways without taking stuff from from other people by smashing glass. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's violence right there. So that's it, it, it's a reminder that, again, you know, we don't live in that perfect world. It's interesting when I've talked to um, to groups uh, before uh, when I've done readings and the, the men seem to have uh, or what I hear more often is that their safety situations tend to be other than mugging, you know, another property crime. I just mm-hmm. want your, I want your watch. I want your wallet, which everybody gets. Mm-hmm. But men seem to get challenged by people who, you know, who want to fight with them. Not, I want to, you know, do something to you, but I, I want to challenge you. I want to have a contest with you. Uh, so it's more like a we're going to come together as equals and one of us is going to win. Whereas women tend to get more, I, I'm going to dominate you, um, mm. those, those kinds of assaults and attacks. And so the men that I've talked to, especially like when I go to Brooklyn and I'm talking to the hipsters in Brooklyn, hmm. um, and they're like, you know, they get accosted by like street people who are like, you know, calling, calling you a, a wuss and, mm-hmm. and challenging you to fight. And they're like, they're not really sure what to do. Cause they're like, I really don't want to fight, but there, there's this weird feeling that I'm a guy and somebody's threatening me, so I should probably fight him, but I don't I don't even know him. I don't really yeah. have any beef in him. Why am I being challenged in this way? So men and women do, do both get challenged in those physical ways, but there there's often a, a, a little bit of a split in the motivation of the attacker. Right. What has kind of mentally the karate taught you about if you're challenged? Good ways to, I'm assuming, either de-escalate or be prepared, kind of give yourself the upper hand prior to any violence. Kind of what have you yeah. learned? Yeah. One thing that, that the, the, the training has taught me is uh, there are many, many more opportunities to de-escalate and use verbal skills and use other skills to get out of a bad situation. And you, you, it's pretty rare that you would really need to use physical skills. When you do need to use physical skills, you need to go full bore right from the beginning because that's usually not a situation where they're going to be talked out of something. So one, one key is sort of assessing the situation and seeing, is this person just angry? Or are they just being irritating? Or is this an immediate danger that I need to react to with you know a thumb to the eye yeah. <laughs> right now? But in the whole sort of spectrum of safety, a lot of the things that you can do to uh, to diffuse a situation or to move yourself into a safer place um, start at a very low level. So we have that sort of using the mind thing, um, thinking about um, how to present yourself assertively, how to use your voice and your your body language and your eye contact to um, to not be aggressive but to be assertive and not passive. That will often keep people from trying to victimize you. Using intuition, I already talked about that. Mm-hmm. Attitude is really important too. You'd be surprised how many women really don't feel like they're worth defending. They don't feel like they have a right to defend themselves. They'll come into workshops, self-defense workshops, and they'll say, am I, am I allowed to hit a person? If they mm-hmm. do this, can I hit them? If they do that, can I hit them? And we tell them, if they're trying to hurt you, you hit them. You know, <laughs> what is this about being allowed? Am I allowed to, to keep myself alive? Yes, mm-hmm. you are. We also use a lot of vocal skills. So, in, I mean, karate you yell a lot, but mm-hmm. uh, for self-defense and in those all those sort of applications that I was talking about, um, using the voice has to do with setting limits, with enforcing personal boundaries. You can use your voice to calm somebody else down by the way you talk to them. You can speak up for other people, and you know, the, the, just the the really key uh, component that I try to get people to take away from a self-defense workshop is as far as communication goes. It's really important that we 
state what we want clearly. So we don't say we want one thing when we're giving some other signal with body language. You know, we don't um, uh, tell somebody, no, it's fine, really, you know, I, 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 you're, you're not bothering me while we're backing away from them. Right. You, want, you want all that stuff to match. Do you think that it's kind of helped you just become more comfortable in your skin with your actions? You know, it doesn't have to be the societal norm. I don't have to act nice to this guy who's, you know, creeping on me or whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I kind of had a tendency to, to act that way before anyway, but I felt that it made me weird and abnormal. And, and now I realize that it's a, a lot of the rest of our culture that is has sort of a pathology and, and needs to be. Um, more aware of, of these the benefits of acting this way and, mm. and, and behaving the, the ways that I've been trained to behave. In your book, you talk about the power of saying no and learning how to do that. Can you talk a little bit about that and what it meant to you to actually learn how to tell people no? Yeah. You know, when I went into that activity, I write about it in one chapter of the book. It's a, a pretty simple activity. You're paired up with a partner who you probably don't know. And one person has to ask questions, um, things like, you know, can I have change for the bus? Can I use your phone for one minute? And the only thing that you can do in response is say no. And you have to look the person in the eye, maintain eye contact, and you can't laugh or smile, uh, which is the really hard part. Yeah. Um, and so you do that and you do that for one minute and then you switch roles. So each person gets a chance to ask and a chance to, uh, to respond. And what I learned from that activity, a couple of things that were really fascinating to me. The first was that, you know, I, I know how to say no, right? But I never did it. I never actually did it. I realized as I had to do it for a full minute, that it felt like a very foreign activity that I was not doing that very often in my life. And it gave me a chance to sort of think about all the situations in which I could have done that. And it probably would have been really effective. It would have been a really smart thing to do. The other piece of it was that as I was asking the questions to my partner and she was saying no to me, I felt horrible. I mean, it felt it was hard to say no over and over again, but you get, you gained a certain power from doing it. But asking the questions when the person was saying no to me over and over again just felt miserable. And I just wanted to stop so badly. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to say, okay, that's fine. I, you know, you, you don't have to give me change for the bus. I'm sorry. I asked really. And it was really a lesson for me in, again, the power of that word. We don't hear it very often, but when we do, we're pretty conditioned to listen to it. And, um, people who don't listen to it, that tells you a lot about their character and what, mm. what their motivation is in asking you for something in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like an exercise I need to do because I am the worst at, if there are kids coming to the door selling things or people oh, yeah. selling stuff <laughs> or people on the street asking me for things, mm -hmm. it, it is. It's one of the hardest things in the world to look at this person that you have no idea who they are and just say no and walk away. So you don't have is, to scold the kid well, who comes to the door. No, no I, I get that. But I'm just saying it's, it is one of the hardest things to do. And I've never actually thought about it. And now after reading that in your book and hearing you talk about what you learned from it, I might have to sit here with Chris after the podcast. And, <laughs> you should and try it out because it's, it's really it, what was really interesting to me about it. I learned those things. Yes, that I just told you about. But as you're doing it, it kind of makes your body feel a certain way. It makes your brain feel a certain way. It was a very visceral experience for me, which surprised me just endlessly because I thought, you know, it's just saying no. You just have to be tough and say it and say no and don't care about what their feelings are. And there was all this like a whole stew of emotions going on inside me when I was saying no and when I was asking questions. It was just I was like, wow, who knew, who knew that, you know, just saying this word could have this incredible effect on my body. 
do you find that because John and I are always trying to talk about how to kind of get out of the hustle and bustle of every day and we live basically in DC and it's crazy and so we'll play softball or something takes our mind off it you do karate I'm sure it's kind of a a meditative state but then you also talk about the kind of meditation and whatnot in your book do you do that a lot or do you mostly just like to be active and breaking boards to kind of relax and get your aggression out? I mean, how do you deal with that? You know, <laughs> Meditate, break boards. Yeah, like same thing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't meditate nearly as often as I should. It's, it has a lot of benefits and I, I should do more of it. Um, but it's one of those things where you know, it's really easy to drop that out because you think, well, I'll do it later. I have a few mm. minutes here. I have a few minutes there. We're, we'll do it as a ritual at the beginning and end of each class. So that's really nice. You have some kind of building built into each day. Um, I'm sure I could do with more of it, though. What what I do always make time for is the the physical activity, um, par- probably because I, like, I teach now, so I have to be there. <laughs> I have to right. either show up, teach other students. And because we're on this, uh, the, the curriculum in Sado is very rich, and you have to practice it a lot, and I don't even get enough practice time in on that. So meditation, the, the, the difficulty there is that I don't have anybody sort of checking my progress. Mm. There's nobody you know, with a checklist saying, okay, you sat for half an hour today and mm-hmm. two hours on Thursday. So I, I, I probably could do with more time on that, but I know that if I stop the physical activity, nobody could live with me. Right. <laughs> Within about right. three days, they right. would be out of the house. And when you do the meditation at the beginning of your training sessions, what is the kind of goal of doing so? Is it the centering? Is it the quieting of the mind? And then how do you achieve that? Kind of give us an example or an idea of how that's done in your martial arts. And at the beginning of class, we usually have, it's quite a short meditation and the the purpose is to help you make the transition from the outside world where you've been working or at school or you know grocery shopping or whatever. Now you're in the dojo. You're coming into this dedicated space and you're there to work on certain things, your karate and yourself. And so you're really trying to empty your mind of a lot of external baggage so that you can sort of have a blank page to start with when you begin training for the day. And physically, the way you do that is you sit and um, there's some bows to the teachers and then uh, everybody closes their eyes and you sit in Seiza, um, not for very long, maybe a minute, and breathe. And so breathing is the big thing. You're trying to empty your mind and you're just trying to concentrate on breathing in and breathing out and um, and nothing else. So that's that's the key is there's really very little to it, but it's that makes it much harder than you would think. No, I oh, believe it's me. next to impossible. I actually, when I was not working on a, a project on my full-time job, one of the things that I took up was meditation because Deepak Chopra. I was say, what'd you do, like Oprah's Yeah, meditation? Deepak and Oprah put out this 21-day meditation challenge, and it was like a guided meditation thing, but it ended up being one of the best things I've ever done. And I, I mentioned it to all my friends, and they always give me so much crap all the time. They're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, meditation this. And I was like, no, seriously, you feel so refreshed and centered. And I, I don't know, it's just, it's something that I recommend everybody give a try. And it is, it's hard. But it's definitely worth it. Yeah, it really is. And, and again, it's one of those things that I would have, you know, before I came to Sundragon, I would have said, that sounds really woo-woo. And right. I'm not at all mm-hmm. impressed with this idea. But the fact that I was taught to meditate by somebody who could have broken my neck in a second, <laughs> it's like, for me, that was very compelling. <laughs> like, oh, this person who is really powerful, really smart, and potentially very violent is telling me that I should sit down and shut up for a while. Hmm. I think maybe I'll try that. And indeed, when I did, I found that it was really 
beneficial to me. Once you try it and you feel the benefits, it's like you don't really need to be sold on it anymore and you don't have to argue with anybody about it. You don't need more evidence. You just feel it. When you were talking about that person being violent, being able to break your neck, I've never taken a karate class. And every time I've seen... I don't know anything about karate. It usually looks like people kind of going through the motions in, in, a little slow. Do, mm-hmm. what, do you ever get just like get after it in karate where you're actually hurting people or, you know, hurting each other? It always just seems we're, like we're hey, not in it to hurt. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it always seems like, oh, I'm just going to do this block, like wax on, wax off type yeah, thing. Yes, there is a lot of that. I mean, you have to remember that the martial arts are an art form. So this is the big uh, uh, kind of tension in our training is that you have the martial art. Um, and then you have self-defense, which mm. is full-on practical and, and none of this, uh, you know, pretty-looking blocks or, or <laughs> um, counting to 10 or any of that. So you have a little bit of both. And in, on the karate side of it, what you're looking at is a, a, a defense system that has become so stylized that it's more useful really as a discipline than it is as a practical art, although it does teach you many techniques that are devastating in a real-world situation. But you go into the martial arts as, as separate from self-defense as a, as a project of self-betterment. That's the, the mm. way it, it mostly is now. And so you are working on um, perfecting your own physical practice and internal practice. And you so you practice some things with an opponent, but if you really are good and you're very devastating with your technique, you would kill people. <laughs> you, uh, you just can't do that. So yeah. it all kind of has to be slowed down. And it has to be, you know, when you spar, for example, it's interesting that the, the targets when you're sparring in martial arts are sort of the mirror opposite of the targets when you're doing self-defense. And the reason for that is self-evident. If you spar with people and you gouge out their eyes and, and you kick them in the groin, right. they are not going to come back <laughs> play with you anymore. So you really have to make it safe in the dojo for that reason. Now, a lot of what you see when you, when you watch uh, karate and martial arts practice is um, uh, like kata, which is one person doing a prescripted um, series of blocks and punches and kicks. And the idea there is that you're looking at a, a sort of a fight that took place maybe with multiple attackers. So imagine you've kind of like filmed that and then you took Photoshop and you took out everybody except one person and mm-hmm. that's what you're seeing. So you're seeing just one one slice of a, of a, a very involved conflict and it's a chance to kind of uh, focus in on that one individual and, and how they're carrying out the fight. So it's a very artistic presentation of conflict or, or combat. It's not right. real world. Right. Actually, and that made me think of from a self-defense perspective, I was hoping you could kind of give us, our listeners, a few tips that we can carry away. Just because I'll never forget this one time. I was at a bar. It was after somebody's wedding, and there was this enormous guy. He was like 6'8", and he was kind of raising a ruckus. And one of my friends works for the Secret Service, and I said, hey, how do they teach you you know, to deal with this guy if you had to? And he said, as soon as I could and as fast as I could, I'd hit him right in the Adam's apple. Yeah. <laughs> and I was it's like, a, it's oh. a great target. Yeah. yeah. So I was wondering what, what kind of you teach, especially, you know, to women and things like that. If it were to come to blows, what, where do we go? Yeah. So your primary, your, your best bet for targets are um, things that are kind of weak for everybody. So the eyeball is a good one. Oh, um, yeah. The, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. that's, I mean, that's the nice thing about when you study this, you know, people can be strong in lots of different ways. Women have lower body strength, men have upper body strength. If you do a lot of weights, you're going to be really strong, but everybody's weak in really similar ways. So you look for patterns there. So the eyeball doesn't matter how big and tough you are. Mm-hmm. 
Um, if my thumb goes about a sixteenth of an inch into Oof. it, you're going to have problems. And I'll tell you this, because I've been stabbed in the eye with a rubber knife before, it really freaks people out to have eye damage. Yeah. <laughs> because the first, as soon as that thumb goes in or the knife or whatever it is, your only thought is, is my eye still in its socket? Oh, <laughs> so wow, yeah. yeah. If you do that, if you do that, you often will get a chance to run. So you gouge the eye poke the eye, and then go. Huh. Um, Adam's apple is a great target on men because there's a nerve bundle there. So if you do, I would do a hammer fist, which is the butt of the, you, know, you make a fist and then smash it against your um, the, the palm of your other hand and the, the butt of your hand where your fingers are all coiled up, that right into the Adam's apple. Or you can go up straight in with the palm heel of the hand into the Adam's apple, and that will uh, often stop the breathing for a while. And that also tends to freak people out. <laughs> if they can't get air, they're going to stop worrying about fighting and they're going to worry about breathing right. more. Right. Groin is a good target, too. It's a little more specialized. I don't want to go into too much detail. <laughs> I mean, you can, to be honest. It's you, not, don't, you, know. you don't. You want to avoid going in from the front on a groin strike because while that is unpleasant, um, and we're talking about a male target right. here, it's not as devastating as coming up from underneath. So what we teach is if you are in a position to go for a groin strike, uh, you want to come up underneath and strike hard and then grab. Oh, and gosh. Then, <laughs> yeah. I can stop there. No, no, no. I, to be honest, this is fascinating. Like, even I know, because I've been hit, hit different angles from baseballs and stuff, coming up from the bottom, that is painful. That's, that's the worst place to, to, to hit them, yeah. And huh. um, knees are also a really good target um, because knees get injured all the time, even when nobody's attacking them. If you play sports at all, you know, there's always somebody on every team who's got a bad knee. Oh, yeah. um, and so a kick to the knee from almost any direction, except directly behind the person, um, will usually damage the knee. So that's a good a good option, too. Hmm. But the eyes and the throat are my two favorites. Yeah, I feel I, I always feel like, what if I missed? Right. Like, what if I went to hit this huge guy in the Adam's apple and I had him like the side of the throat? And then he just pounded me. And but I guess well, that's a good time to block. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think if you're if you're going up to hit him, it kind of sounds like maybe you had the option to move away from him instead, which might have been preferable. If he's already grabbed you, right, and, right. And, you, and you hit and you miss, just go for something else. Go for the eye. The right. eye is really easy to target because you can slap your whole hand right there on the side of their face, and then uh, just use that as a guide to drive your thumb in. Huh. So that's a, that's a pretty easy. Um, even beginners can have right. great success with that technique. No, I mean, that's good advice. I really, I was interested in it. Well, I hope you'll never have to use it. Me if, too. If you hang out with people who are in the Secret Service, it sounds like you've got your bases covered, really. You don't need to Yeah. Work. No, it's... luckily, yeah. I usually just travel with a bunch of people, and I'll just, I'm a pacifist, so, you know. <laughs> but we're past that point. Luckily, we made it We made it out of college, and, and we should be good now, so. That's good. Yeah, glad to hear. Yeah, they're, they're, for men especially that, there's that particular age window of, of adolescence through, like uh, late twenties, yep. where most of the violence happens. Yeah, so, that's yeah. funny. Well, you know, thank you so much. And uh, your book, Smile at Strangers, it's great. You know, and and the praise that you got for it, it's kind of right on target. That the tone you use is it goes from everything from like angry, just being pissed off, to to hilarious, and then to dead on. I mean, it's it's a great read. I wanted to give you a chance. You know, where our listeners could find out more about you, your website. Do you are you active on social media, anything like that? Yes, I'm on Twitter. It's my name, Susan Shorn, S-U-S-A-N-S-C-H-O-R-N. I have a website also uh, at the same name, and I blog a little bit there. I have the column on McSweeney's. And then I'm getting ready to go on book tour. I'm sitting here trying to get my itinerary together. In fact, I'll be in D.C. Um, on the 
15th, I think, at Politics and Prose. You familiar with the bookstore? Yeah, absolutely. There? Yeah. They're going to have me they're going to have me next door at Comet Ping Pong at the bar. Comet Ping Pong's awesome. Yeah. I've been there a bunch of times cuz I work kind of near there in DC, so that's great. Where are you located? I'm in Austin, Texas. Oh, Austin. Austin's yeah. awesome. And, and Sundragon's website is online, too, and people can uh, go there and see some pictures of, of some of my friends who train with me at the dojo. Really cool. Really cool. Well, Susan, thank you so much, and best of luck on your book tour. I know it's going to get a great response, so thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I think you guys are doing great work, too. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Have a good day. You, too. All right. Bye-bye. All right, guys, thank you for listening to that interview with Susan Shorn. Hope you enjoyed it. Please, please, please. That's begging. Please don't go around punching people in the Adam's apple or doing any groin shots. We do not want to be held responsible. No, but if you do, as you strike them, be like, smart people podcast. (laughs) Don't do that either. Let's... Take, take Susan's advice in, in turning around and in running away from the confrontation. But as you're running away, you can say, hey, listen to Smart People Podcast. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for tuning in, guys. Be sure to reach out to us, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. And check out the website, Smart People Podcast. We are, we've been doing good at keeping the shows regular, except for last weekend with the move and everything. Tell a friend about the show. We appreciate all you guys do and listening and your support. You rock. The iTunes reviews show us that you like it. We're going to keep bringing it to you, and it's it's a good time. Keep tweeting us at Smart People Pod.